It's a joy to uh, greet you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And um, I'm Mike, the pastor here. If you haven't met me yet, uh, if you're coming to the picnic this afternoon and you don't know me, uh, look for me, uh, and I'll be maybe not on the slide, but near the big slide. So, uh, but we hope you'll come and join us for that uh, afterwards. As Mastona said, we're continuing this morning in our um, our sermon series. It's the second week in our sermon series on the living church. And today we're going to be looking at two passages this morning. We'll have some other scriptures sprinkled through the sermon, but two main passages that we are considering. Uh, the first is Psalm 96, and then we're going to flip to the back and look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. So let's pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, as, uh, as Mastona has already prayed, we ask that you would speak to us this morning that your Holy Spirit would would come and open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and that through your word you reveal yourself to us, that you teach us, that you rebuke us, that you train us in righteousness. But most especially, Lord, we thank you that through your word you reveal to us the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that you would bring us to a deeper understanding of of what it means to be your church and what it means uh, for us to worship you and why that is so important uh, for us to do as your people. So we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then we'll flip over to Revelation chapter 7, and we'll just be looking at a few short verses here, uh, verses 9 through 12, actually, we'll be looking at. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. 
They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we began our series, our new sermon series uh, for this autumn, The Living Church. And it's uh, based on a book by John Stott. Uh, We'll just be loosely following his topics throughout that book. Um, But it's an important idea for us to consider, uh, perhaps for obvious reasons, because we are the church. So what does it mean for us to be a living church? A church that is alive in Christ. And one of the points that that we made last week and that is worth repeating is that the life of the church is given to us as a gift by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit among us. And so as we look at these different topics, these different marks of the uh, living church, what we want to remember is is that we are not trying to practice these things in order to, to make us alive, but we want to pray that the Holy Spirit would be active and present among us, because that is where our life comes from. In other words, there's nothing that we can do in our own power to give ourselves life as a church. We can only receive it with thanksgiving. That is true of so much of the Christian life, that we receive it as a gift from God with thanksgiving. But that being said, there are certain marks or fruits of a church that is alive in Christ. And that tells us something about the life and health of that particular body, that particular expression of the universal church. If you look at a group of people that call themselves a church and they're not worshiping, you might question whether they were alive in Christ or not. Uh, there's all kinds of marks that we can look at and say, what's going on there? How come they, they don't have that? Or look how much they have that and how wonderful it is. That is a, a living church that we see there. So we see... Uh, Different marks, worship, evangelism, service, giving, they will all be present to some degree in a living and healthy church body. They come naturally from being a living church, and practicing them is our faithful response to God and his grace to us. So each week over the next few months, we're going to be looking at these these different marks or practices We're going to be looking at what the Bible says about them and how they build up the body of Christ. And so we started last week not by looking at one of these marks or one of these practices of fruits of a living church, but with laying the foundation for the whole rest of the series. And I know uh, not all of you were here last week. I'm guessing not all of you watched the live stream, so we're just doing a quick review uh, for those of you who missed it. Um, But what is the church? That's what we talked about last week. What is the church? Or better, who is the church? And we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we talked about how it has been God's design and purpose from the very beginning to set apart from the world a people for himself, to be his own special possession, to bring him glory. And we saw, saw this all the way back in Genesis when God called Abraham And he told him to leave the land of his fathers and go to the land which I'm going to show you. And he made a covenant with him to be his God and that he was going to be the God of Abraham's ancestors. And we see that this this call, this covenant, it was carried on by Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, and that God made uh, made them his people, his own special possession. And it's continued in the New Testament with the church. This is our identity. We are a people 
that God has set apart to be his own possession, to bring him glory. And we become a part of this people uh, by God's grace through putting our faith in the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ, his only son. When we put our faith in him, when we come to new life in Christ, then we are a part of the church. We are a part of God's people, whether we may want to be or not. But it's never just meant to be us alone with God. Again, this is part of God's design and purpose, not that when we come to faith in him, that we would have some sort of private, individualized relationship with God that is separated from other believers, the body of Christ, but that we would become vital members of Christ's body, the household of God. And it's in fellowship with other believers that we are to live out the life of faith. That's why we gather together here on Sunday mornings. That's why we meet in each other's homes for for Bible study, for meals, for all of these other things. It's part of living out this fellowship. It means being part of the church. And I love in in his book, John Stott describes uh, unchurched believers, people who would say they're going to separate themselves from the body of Christ. He describes them this way. He says they are a grotesque anomaly. And he says the New Testament knows nothing of such a person. The New Testament knows nothing of of an unchurched Christian. Strong words, I know, but he gets his point across. In the New Testament idea of things, there is no such thing as an unchurched Christian. So that's point one from last week, that the church's identity is as a people who are set apart to be God's own possession. And we become part of it when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we come to faith in him. And then we also talked about the church's task last week, uh, which is to proclaim Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning. That is the church's primary task or call. And this is the idea that we're going to be exploring more in depth over this week and next. In 1 Peter, from what we looked at last week, it's described as declaring the praises of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And in our psalm today, Psalm 96, it's described as saying among the nations that the Lord reigns. This is what it means to proclaim Jesus Christ, uh, crucified, risen, and reigning. So we're going to be talking about this in terms of worship this week and evangelism next week. This is how we see the primary task of the church primarily being carried out in the church's worship and in the church's evangelism. And one of the things that we talked about last week is how the church has sort of a dual identity. We have been called out from the world, but then God sends us back into the world. He calls us out, makes us his special possession, and then sends us back into the world to proclaim his good news and to proclaim Jesus Christ in the world. We're not meant to isolate ourselves from the world once God has called us out, but we are meant to be in it, to engage with it. We are to influence and to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord over it. And so we might look at worship and evangelism in some ways as two sides of the same coin. That worship is when we declare Jesus Christ as Lord, uh, but we direct it back to God. That is what we are doing in worship. We are proclaiming the greatness of Jesus Christ and of God our Father, but we are directing that back to God. In evangelism, we're doing the same thing, but directed out to the world. I hope that makes sense. But in looking in these two practices together, or these two acts of the church, both marks of a living church, worship and evangelism, the priority must be given to worship. The priority must be given to worship because it, above all, 
is what we are created to do. It is what God's people are called and set apart to do, to worship. Now, that's not to say we don't evangelize, and we'll talk about that more next week, but the priority always to worship because that is where we have our relationship with the Lord. There's a man uh, named Stephen Covey. Some of you may have heard of him before. He was well-known in America a few decades ago for his books on productivity and organization. Um, and he wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Has anybody ever heard of that book before? You've probably been, if you ever graduated from something, somebody probably gave it to you uh, at some point. That's how I received it, okay? But he has a great quote. This is what I know about Stephen Covey. He has this great quote uh, that I love. He says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? <laughs> See what he did there? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, okay? And in the church, the main thing is worship. What Stephen Covey is getting at here is he's talking about priorities, about how keeping things in their proper place will play itself out in your life in good ways. Keeping the main thing, the main thing, is going to spill out into every other area of of your life. And so in the church, the main thing is worship. If we can do that well, if we can keep the main thing, the main thing, then everything else is more likely to find its right place in our lives as the church. For the church, the main thing is to keep worship the main thing. Because this is the heart of our life together in fellowship with each other, and it is the heart of our communal life with God. It is the main thing. Whatever else we do as a church, then we need to be worshiping God. So why is worshiping God so vital for us? Why is it so important? Why is it the main thing? Well, as we said, as we just sort of touched on, we were made for it. This is what God has created us for. Human beings are made for for worship. As Christians, we'd say that we were made to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what we were created for, to worship God. But if not God, if we choose not to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we will find something else to worship. Make no mistake. You will be worshiping something, and who or what we worship will form who we are as individuals and as a body. The American writer, 19th century American writer named Ralph Waldo Emerson, he had a great quote about this where he says that we are going to worship something. Make no mistake about this. He says, have no doubt that we should be careful what we worship because what we worship, we will become. What we worship, we will become. In other words, whatever you choose to worship is going to shape and determine your life. If you worship money, then that's going to shape your life. It's going to shape what you prioritize. It's going to shape how you spend your time. It's going to shape the way that you interact with other people, the way that you go about your job, right? If you worship money, it will shape your life. You can worship any number of things. You can worship success. You can worship power. You can worship respectability. You can worship sports. You can worship love. You can worship pleasure. There's any number of things that you can worship in this life. And whatever you give your life to is going to affect everything else in your life. And so this is why keeping God in Christ at the center of our life as a church is so crucial. 
so that we glorify him and that we are formed as a people into his likeness. This is why it is so crucial that we keep worship at the center of our lives as a church. 1,600 years uh, before Stephen Covey, there was another uh, man who I might commend to you uh, more named Augustine of Hippo. Uh, He is a man whose teachings, uh, he was a North African uh, leader in the church. His teachings in theology resonate powerfully within the church even now. If you go to a bookstore, you are likely to find his books still there somewhere. And he had sort of a similar idea, although he presented it in regards to Christians keeping their loves in order. In Augustine's view, one of the ways that our sin plays out in our lives is through disordered loves. God is meant to be our primary love above all else. We think of the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. But as sinful human beings, our tendency is to put other things, other people, in that primary place in our lives, that we would love other things or other people more than God. And this is what we call idolatry. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's, it's the ancient sin. It's the one that we've been warned against over and over and over again. Putting other things or people into what is God's rightful place in our lives and loving and worshiping these other things instead of the living God. And when that is out of place, when our first love is out of place, when it's disordered, then everything else is going to fall out of place in our lives as well. Whenever anything else moves into God's place in our lives, we lose our bearings quite quickly, and it can be difficult to get them straightened back out again. If you feel like your life is maybe out of order or off track or something like that, then you may ask yourself, is my relationship with the Lord, the primary thing is my primary love right now, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a question worth asking yourself. So within the church, worship is what keeps Christ in that primary position within our life together, which helps everything else fall into its proper place. As we said, worship is, is what we were created for as human beings. There is, there is no more fundamental act for us than to praise the Lord. Augustine himself uh, says it this way, the quote's up there already. He says it this way, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, an important confession in in my Reformed tradition, the, the first question is this, What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever forever. In the picture of the early church that we're given uh, at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see that already the life of this new community that had been brought into existence by the Holy Spirit is centered on acts of worship. As they met together in the temple courts, as they met together in each other's homes, they were praising God, they were praying, they were breaking bread together, they were worshiping together. And in our passage from Revelation that we looked at uh, earlier, we're given a picture of the future church, God's people in the age to come, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And what we see there is that the church will continue to meet in worship even in the age to come. The church will continue to worship God into all eternity. It's an image of God's people from every tongue and tribe and nation, like we said, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, 
And they, along with the angels and the elders and the, 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 the beasts, they all fall down on their faces and they worship God and they sing praises to him. And all of these things together bring to light the reality that the church lives into its identity as a people set apart for God's own possession and it fulfills its task of proclaiming Jesus crucified, risen, and reigning through its primary act of worship. Let me say that again. All of these things we just looked at, these quotes and these the Acts 2 and Revelation, all of it brings to light the reality that the church lives into its identity as a people set apart for God's own possession. And it fulfills its task of proclaiming Jesus crucified, risen, and reigning through its primary act of worship. It is the main thing. It is what we as human beings were created for, and it's what we're called to do together as the body of Christ. I've often said uh, and I, throughout my, my life of ministry, I'm sure I've said it in here at some point in the last 10 months, that we were created to be in relationship with God. And so now this morning I'm saying we were created to worship God. Uh, I don't know that these two things are necessarily uh, in conflict with each other. You might ask, which is it? But we do have a personal God. We do have a personal God. This is the God who walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. This is the God who has spoken to us through the apostles and the prophets. The God who who took on flesh and came to live among us. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. This is the God who has called us his children and invites us to pray to him, to present our requests to him, to cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. So there should be no question for us that our God is a personal God. And so, yes, we were created to be in a personal relationship with this God, to relate to him in a personal way. But we were also created for worship, to bring glory to the one who is the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who is described in the book of Hebrews as a consuming fire, the God who inspires reverence and awe, and who before him people fall on their faces in prayer and in worship. So there should be no question for us that we are also created to worship this personal God. And the two can be held together, I think, when we understand worship to be the means by which we relate to this God. Worship is the way that we speak to God, that we hear from him. We serve him, we obey his commands, we give him thanks and praise. These are all ways in which we relate to God or have fellowship with him. They are acts of worship. Uh, The Scottish theologian uh, James Torrance says this is exactly what is happening in our worship, that it is ultimately a relational activity between us and God uh, when we worship him. That through our worship, we are welcomed into the very inner life of God, the loving communion shared between the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. He says, worship is the gift of participating uh, in, through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. He lifts us up out of ourselves to participate in the very life and communion of the Godhead, that life of communion for which we were created. This is a big view of what's happening in worship, right? That, that in worship, we are brought into the loving relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit this relationship that we were created for. So in this way, worship and our relationship with God go hand in hand with each other. I think Torrance explains it well, and perhaps using the word communion rather than relationship helps us to think about it a little bit differently, that we were created for communion with God. 
And it is by our worship that we experience that communion. In a way, we might even say that we were made for worship of God because we were also made for communion with God. So if we agree on the importance of worship, then how do we learn to do it rightly? How do we learn to do it rightly? Why do we do all these things that we do up here on Sunday morning? Where did this come from? Are we, are we just making this up as we go along? I hope not. I hope not. Like with all other matters of faith, what we do is we look to God's word. We look to the scriptures, and it shows us the way to right and proper worship. And even within the scriptures themselves, the book of Psalms becomes our main guide in how to worship God. This collection of of songs and poems and prayers, uh, it's been guiding God's people in worship for thousands of years already, and it has much to teach us as God's people now and how to go about worshiping him. You will not hurt yourself by spending more time in the Psalms, friends, I promise you. Read the Psalms, pray them, learn them, and it will benefit you and your relationship with the Lord. It was difficult uh, to commit to which psalm to use as our main passage this morning because of how much good material there is in them. You read a little bit and I'd say, oh, this is the one for this week. And then I would look again, no, 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 it's this one. No, it's this one. I picked this one. We put it in the newsletter and then I thought maybe I should have done that one. Too late. It was in the newsletter. I'm committed. But there's some great stuff here in Psalm 96. All of it, my point is, all of it is teaching us how to worship God. Here this morning in Psalm 96, we find good examples of the key elements of our worship, and particularly its focus on who God is and what God has done. In fact, I think this is sort of a good, succinct definition of worship. It's our faithful response to who God is and what God has done, acknowledging his worthiness to be glorified. So this is what we see here. This has always been what God's people have praised him for. Uh, And what we see on display in Psalm 96, who God is and what he has done. Even as we were singing songs this morning during our worship time, I was thinking, yes, we're singing about who God is. We're singing about what God has done. This is what we worship him for. The whole psalm begins with a call to worship, even, even a command to worship. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. The call is to sing And in this case, to sing a new song. And I don't know that new songs are necessarily better than old songs, but in this case, this is what the psalmist is asking for here, to sing to the Lord a new song. He's instructing his listeners to make music for God's glory. Music and singing may be the most universal and fundamental form of worship that there is. Anywhere you go, in all times and places in the church, God have used music to worship him. I've heard music described as the the language of the heart, and there's truth to that description. Music touches us in ways that the spoken word doesn't. It expresses things that we want to say, but we aren't sure how to do it. And it's often what we take away with us on Sunday morning more than anything else if we admit it. Uh, I am much more likely on Monday to be singing the refrain from a song that we've sung up here than I am to be reciting the sermon points in my head. And I know that's true for many of you as well, right? The way that we sing, the music that we sing is so key to our worship of God. 
In fact, many of us just simply equate music with worship. Our singing is our worship. The musicians are the worship team, right? Uh, when we are done with making announcements and prayers and things, we'll say, let's return to worship, as if we took a break there for a minute, right? Uh, we equate music with worship. My point is not necessarily to, to convict us of that, but just to say this is how important music and singing is. And this is what our psalmist wants us to do, to sing to the Lord a new song. This is why we're so careful, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is why our musicians are so careful in the songs that they pick, because this is what you're going to leave with from most Sundays, is what you've been singing. And so it's important that we have the message in these songs correct. We want the theology to be right, because it is teaching you something. What you are singing is teaching you something. Often what we sing becomes what we believe. Music is such a vital part of worship, and this is where this psalm begins. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. This psalm goes beyond even the congregation of Israel, calling all peoples, even all of creation, to worship the Lord. That is how big worship is, that all of creation would worship our God. And this is something we see throughout this psalm. It's not just God's people who are called to praise and worship him, but all that he has made. And then we move to talking about who God is, praising him for who he is and what he's done. Verse 2 says this, sing to the Lord and praise his name. Verses 8 and 9 say, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And these verses are talking about worshiping God for who he is. And they do so by instructing us to focus on the Lord's name to praise it, to to give it glory, the glory that it is due. And this is because in Scripture, God's name is really important. It has power. We are not to take the Lord's name in vain, to use it as if uh, in a flippant way or an irreverent way. In the memorable scene when God calls Moses in the book of Exodus, Moses asks God his name. He says, when I go to Pharaoh, who am I going to tell him sent me? And God responds to him. He says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, right? My name is Yahweh. And his answer to Moses, in a way, is vague. God doesn't reveal but so much about himself in saying this. But even by giving it, God reveals something about himself and his character. He is not a God who withholds himself from us, but he is a God who tells us his name. He is a God who goes with us who stays close to us, who lets us call him by his name. When God reveals his name to Moses and to us through the scriptures, he is telling us something about who he is. And we are to praise him and to worship him for it. And then verse 9 points to his holiness as another reason for worship. Again, part of who God is. He is holy, completely set apart in goodness and wisdom and beauty And finally, in verses 4 and 5, it says that he is to be feared above all gods, that the gods of all of the nations are idols. And the consistent witness of Scripture is that the God of Israel, the, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only God. He is the living God. He is the one true God. And so this is also part of who God is and why we are to worship him. In a world that is full of idols bidding us to worship them, here is the real God, the only one deserving our worship, the one who says, here is my name, follow me, worship me, 
the one who demonstrated his love for us by giving his son for our sake. This is the one who we are called to worship. Of course, there's more that can be said about God's character and about who he is, but Psalm 96 gives us the grounding to invoke God's name and to praise and glorify him in doing so. And then we move to praising God for what he has done for us. In verse 3, it says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all of the peoples. And this psalm in particular points to God's work of salvation, past, present, and future. He is the God who created the heavens. It says the, the earth is firmly placed. He is the God who saves his people in verse 2. And he is the God who will one day judge the world in his righteousness in verse 13. And these are all parts of God's work to redeem the world throughout history. He is the God who saves his people. And all of this, again, gives us the basis of our worship. Our God is the living God. Our God brings us salvation day after day. And we know how this worship, worshiping God for who he is and what he has done, we know how this plays out in a worship service as we gather together on Sunday mornings. When we meet together in this room like this, we recognize worship or this form of worship when we see it and when we participate in it. We're all gathered together here. We're listening to a message from God's word. We're singing God's songs. But there is more to worship than simply what happens here on Sunday morning. And I think that's a really important part of what we're going to talk about this morning or what we're talking about this morning. What we do here on Sunday morning is a vital part of our worship, to be sure. But if this is the be-all and end-all of our worship lives, then we are missing out on the fullness of life promised to us in Jesus Christ. What happens here on Sunday mornings, it's meant to spill out into the rest of our lives, into our weeks, into our days, and what we do. This is part of of what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And what Paul is getting at here, or part of what he's getting at here, is that our whole lives are meant to be an act of worship in view of God's mercy. Again, in response to what he has done. Worship is singing songs of praise, it's, it's listening to sermons, it's offering prayers, but it also includes how we steward the gifts that God has given to us, our money and our talents, how we use those things. Are we using them in selfish ways or to build up God's kingdom? Worship is how we treat the vulnerable and marginalized people that we see in the world. It's how we care for his creation, the way we steward all that he has made. Worship involves uh, how we conduct ourselves in our vocations and in our relationships with other people. Worship involves how we live according to his word, our obedience. All of these are part of our true and proper worship. And all of this is our faithful response to who God is and what he has done. The theologian uh, John Webster uh, sums it up well. I quoted him last week as well. But he wrote a reflection on praise, which I think applies to all of worship. And he says this, Praise isn't a single thing, and it's certainly not to be restricted to public worship, Sunday or otherwise. Praise is a cluster of activities, all of which have their center in the celebration of the sheer fact that God is God. Praise involves thanksgiving, 
extolling God's mighty deeds in speech and in song. It's a matter of glorying in the name of God. It involves rejoicing the heart. It is about seeking the presence of God. And as we praise, we remember the wonderful works of God. But the unifying factor in all of them is that they are all aspects of what happens when human life is overtaken by a truth of such magnitude, goodness, and worthiness that we cannot but praise. And that truth is that he is the Lord our God. This is why we praise God. This is why we worship him. In Psalm 96, it says it this way. It's proclaiming that the Lord reigns. And when we are overtaken by that reality, it leads us to praise and to worship of him. Webster uh, gives us something to aspire to, as, does the, as do the Psalms and all of Scripture. But Webster also acknowledges the tension here that our, our worship here on earth will never be fully what it is supposed to be. It's never going to fully be what it is supposed to be because we always worship under the shadow of our fallenness. But in Christ, friends, the good news is here. In Christ, God has provided the one who does offer pure and perfect worship to our Heavenly Father. He is our great high priest who intercedes for us at the Father's right hand, and he has offered the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. All that is needed has been provided for us. And through our faith in him, we participate in his perfect worship of our Heavenly Father. And not only that, but as we worship him, Jesus Christ himself, for who he is and what he has done, he has been given the name that is above all names, the name that means the Lord saves. And he is the lamb who was slain, that Revelation tells us is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and praise. And as we gather to worship him together each week, as we live lives of worship at all times, his spirit works in us to make us the people that he has created us to be, a people for his own possession whose lives glorify him. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we come before you this morning. We want to to give praise to your name. We want to worship you in the beauty of your holiness. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together each week as the body of Christ to sing these songs, to offer these prayers, to hear your word, and to worship you. And we pray, Lord, that that no matter what we do as a church here at ICP, that, that your worship would be at the heart of everything that we do. We pray that we would never lose sight of what our main task is. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, for his perfect act of worship on the cross. The sacrifice that paid for our sins, that allows us to be in the relationship with you that we are in. That allows us to be saved. And so we pray, Lord, that we would always be living in view of that mercy that you have given to us. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.